Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 294 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is You Had Me at Chocolate, an interview with Ali Lazowski. My name is Nicoletta Forbes. And I'm Richard Johannesson. We have the pleasure of speaking with Ali Lazowski, CEO and founder of Bear Life. We named the episode You Had Me at Chocolate. The reason we went with this, You Had Me at Chocolate, was because without the experience of her Lyme journey, Allie wouldn't have created a chocolate that was healthy for her to eat and for many of us Lyme warriors as well. She told her story of how working with a therapist led her to understanding how her diet influenced her Lyme. Also realized that she needed to work with a doctor that thought outside the box. Working with this doctor then led her to realizing that stem cells might be an option for her. Without further ado, we'd love to present Allie Lazowski, CEO and founder of Bear Life, on this episode of You Had Me at Chocolate. Hey, Allie Lazowski of Bear Life. Welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm really excited not only to have you on, you've been somebody that we've been targeting for this podcast for a long time, but I'm even more excited about this podcast than usual because I have a special guest co-host today, our good friend, Nicoletta Forbes. So Nicoletta, please say hi to the folks. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for being on today. I look forward to hearing your story. Um, And with that said, I kind of want to jump in and just you give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Tell us, you know, where do you live? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Fill us in. Thanks, uh, Nicoletta. I'm excited to be with you to a fellow Lyme warrior. Um, okay, you may have to repeat that question. Uh, I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, and I went to school in uh, Maryland. And I mostly lived in New England for my whole life um, and then took a bit of a gap year in between high school and college and amazingly got to study in Italy cooking and in China as well for six months, uh, studying the language there. So love traveling, but mostly grew up in uh, New England. That's awesome. Italy's fantastic. Haven't been to China. That's that's great. Um, So with that said, fill us in. Were those included in any part of your future goals? Is that why you traveled? They were actually part of my gap year, which was, I was really fortunate, A, to have one at all. And B, my parents were very much like, if you could do anything, what would you do? We want this to just be like a year of passion of, you know, not, not focusing on what I was trying to achieve, but just a year of like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I was like, okay, cook me in Italy. I would be cooking with food in Italy. And I would just be, I love learning. So I would just be like learning uh, languages in China because I also love a good challenge and Chinese is quite the challenging language so <laughs> that's awesome that's fantastic so what other achievements did you have or did you want to pursue sorry you were saying that you know that was your gap year what what were you wanting to do afterwards so I was very much focused on like the traditional you know like right you know middle school high school college that path, you know, graduate school, maybe afterwards. Um, I got in, went to Johns Hopkins University and was very, I'm very type A, which you'll, you probably got from the first part about um, spending my uh, time studying in China. And uh, so I was very much interested in like international relations or international business, maybe even finance as well. And I was really sort of discovering exactly what I wanted to do, but I know I wanted to do like international business. I have a very entrepreneurial family. So 
so I wanted to follow in their footsteps and do something related to that um, on maybe an international scale, but I was still 100% nailing it down. Okay. So when you were still nailing it down, so did you start doing any of that stuff or... I did in terms of like, I had internships where I worked in China for a bit. I was on the debate team in high school and college. I was uh, put in charge of, they have a stock market club, stock market team at Johns Hopkins where we invested uh, about $100,000 of an endowment, which is again, like a dream thing to do at like 20, 19, 20. It's crazy. Um, So I was running that. I was uh, the only female head of an organization that was mostly male uh, dominated. So it was really cool, very high. Like I was always trying to do more and learn more and take more harder classes and everything like that. So I, I felt like I was on the right path uh, at the time, achieving what I, I wanted to achieve. Always wanted more, but it was felt like I was on the right path at that time. That's awesome. Sounds like it, but that was, that's an eventful uh, life for a 20 year old. I don't know. Mine wasn't that eventful, you know, not at 20, not at all. That's awesome. So when, at what point did your symptoms begin? So they actually began in high school, but I didn't really know it at the time. I, I mean, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't really know what it was. So I don't even count this as part of like my health journey time period, but I was 17 and it was like junior year in high school which is of course the time when everyone is like trying to apply to colleges and just being inundated with more homework than you have ever seen before and which college can I get into and interview and everything and I just all of a sudden was really exhausted I was on the the varsity golf team as well which becomes important because that's where you run into a lot of ticks because I am not the best golfer so my balls were often in the in the rough where there's, you know, some longer grass where we know the ticks like to, like to check out. Um, and so I didn't, at first it was presenting as sort of this brain fog, really intense fatigue. And I was just diagnosed with like a mono like illness. That was like the official thing. And so that's what happened. And I, and they gave me some antibiotics and things kind of got better or at least in like a more stable um, area. And I was just so focused on like, I've got to go to college. I can't take off any time. I've got to stay with the plan. So I sort of just ig- tried to like shove it all down and ignore it. And it was also the gap year coming was helpful. So I could take some time off. I took sort of a partial leave in high school. And then like my junior year in college, it all just caught up with me. And that's when things just kicked off. And did you notice any type of progression? Like, what was that progression that you noticed? It was just a real, I mean, I I was so like focused on just like really a denial of like what was going on. Just like I've got it. There's no room for me to like acknowledge this. I've really got to focus on like, you know, staying with my class, especially when you're that young, you're like, I'm 17. I'm supposed to be a junior in college with other, yeah, no, junior in high school <laughs> with other 17 yeah. year olds. And then I'm 18. I'm supposed to be like, there's such a like regimented trajectory. So I was really focused on like, I can't lose any time. I've got to stay focused and all the way through college. 
And I was just getting more tired and being able to do less, but not really realizing it. And then taking, being sick for longer and longer periods, like being taking two weeks off to work one week and then being sick for three weeks. And I had all of these, there were so many other conditions that I found out in addition to the line that muddled everything even more. So I was getting all these recurrent sinus infections that we didn't know. I was on antibiotics like almost every day for like a year or two before, um, you know, I ended up in the ER. So like just with recurrent sinus infections, like crazy. And so that's really what got like progressively worse. But at the time it didn't, again, I was just so focused. And then the other big thing for me is I also found out that I have IBS as well. So every time I would eat anything, I would be in such terrible stomach pain. And that was also getting just worse and worse and worse as I went. Yeah. What, what would you say that the pivoting point where you knew that you had to do something or something, I know we say we knew something was wrong, but where, where was that moment? What was that moment that you knew something was wrong and you had to do something? Yeah. And for me, I wish this wasn't true, but for me, I needed like a big, like wall, like neon sign moment, like a big stop. Like I needed something. And for me, I ended up in the ER and I, I had, it turns out I had like 102 degree fever and I was like delirious. I was so, I couldn't get out of bed. I was, and I was just still like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to like, I'll be fine in like two days. It'll go away. Like I'll be okay. And I was just in the ER and they were like, you are not okay. You need a medical leave of absence. You need to take some time. You need to figure it out. And I just really, I thought I, you know, I was just very denial is the best word, very focused. I just really thought that it would be fine tomorrow because who, like I had no experience in dealing with a chronic illness in a, in a, in a real way, you know, that someone, someone could be sick for such a long time. I just felt like you get sick and you get better. That's pretty much how it is. So it was literally, I was in the ER and they were like, you have to stop or you're going to die. So I needed to, like, they were like, you need to take some time. You have a bad fever. You can't get out of bed. And so that was pretty much it. I, I was like during exams or right before exams and my parents came, passed me up and went home and started my seven, eight year long journey of trying to find an answer of what was actually happening. So speaking of journey, what were those next steps on your journey? Once you had that moment where you knew that you had to do something more because something was definitely wrong, what were those next steps? Yeah. So my, like the immediate next step was sleep, (laughs) like a lot of sleep. I slept, I think I slept for at least two or like two days straight or something like that. I was just exhausted. And then it became about circling the wagons and really like Googling everything that I could find. And I just started with my primary care who had like no idea what was going on with anything and just hopped from like doctor to doctor in like almost like skipping stones around the pond. Like I went from one doctor who would recommend this specialist like an infectious disease specialist. And then the infectious disease specialist would recommend a neurologist. And no one knew anything about anything. Like no one had any idea. And what was also worse for me is my 
conditions were so layered. So like the first onion, as I like the first layer of the onion, as I talked about, I had those recurrent sinus infections. I was getting right. them every month. I was on antibiotics all the time, which I actually think maybe suppressed some of the Lyme disease symptoms as well. Um, I know, know that now maybe, but anyways, um, sorry, spoiler alert about the Lyme disease. I, so then I found out that not only was I having recurrent sinus infections, I had these smallest sinuses that the um, ENT that I had seen in one of my specialty hopping visits had ever seen. So they were so small that I would get an infection and it would just stay there and it wouldn't leave my sinuses. So then I had to go find a specialist and I went all the way down that rabbit hole because I had to find someone who could actually operate on such small sinuses that they had to have them like mapped out like the brain in order for them to like really get in there and do that. So then I went, so like that went all the way down that rabbit hole. And I was like, okay, this is the answer. I'm going to do sinuses. They're really bad and we'll be done. Gamey. Of course, that didn't happen. That was just that would like, be too easy, right? That would be way too easy. <laughs> like that would be so much fun. Um, so that so I checked that off. And then again, specialty hopping. I'm like, I'm still not feeling well. I'm tired. Some of the joint aches are coming in now at this point because when they did the sinus infections, um, the surgery, I was stopping taking the antibiotics. So I was starting to get these migraines and these really bad joint aches, like my back, and was just like going to the to the dishwasher to like empty the dishwasher, taking a shower was like the big thing I did that day. Like it, I was so yeah. ex- like, just everything felt heavy. Um, I couldn't concentrate. I was, I, I didn't even know this at the time, but I, cause I didn't think it was abnormal, but I would just sit in a room with no light because like any little bit of anything, the computer screen, a little like light bulb next to me was like incredibly stimulating and painful. So I had all of these symptoms and probably even some that I'm forgetting about at this point, but I was like sitting with there. So I was like, I know there's something wrong. I need to see another doctor. So I considered, continued my specialty hopping, saw another infectious disease specialist that was recommended by the last doctor and they did a CAT scan. And there was this little shadow on like the top of the CAT scan. And they were like, that's weird. There's not supposed to be a shadow there. So they went, did an ultrasound. Turns out I had cancer that had metastasized from my thyroid to a little, not too bad, just a lymph node or two. And I was like, oh my, I remember getting that. And I just knew it. Like, you know, sometimes, cause you know, your body and like, I knew, and they don't tell you anything during your ultrasound, but I just knew it. Like, I remember I walked out. And I'm not like hyperbolic with stuff. Like I'm not like I'm dying when I'm not like I am very like I downplay stuff as you'll you've learned from the beginning part of my story. And I came out and I was like, mom, I'm telling you it's cancer. And then of course we found out like an hour later. And, you know, so we did everything. I got biopsied. I had surgery. I had treatment. I had my whole thyroid removed. Um, I had to deal with all of those medication things, which you have to supplement. And let me tell you, getting your thyroid removed is not like getting your appendix removed. It is such a major thing. Um, It is, you know, it really controls so much of your, of everything you do, especially as a woman, because you, you know, I, we have cycles. So my hormones fluctuate each month and your thyroid normally releases hormones. So that gets affected by that. So there's a lot of management that has to go through it. And again, this whole time I'm thinking, 
this is the answer. Cause I have a fever this whole time. I forgot about that. I have a fever this whole time. And I'm thinking the thyroid, it regulates your body temperature too. This is it. We got this. I had the cancer. That was the thing. We're going to check this off and be done. Nope. Not that the wasn't case. it. Not it. Just another layer on that onion for me. And then again, just kept specialty hopping until someone, another infectious disease specialist, I think this is, I mean, I, made, I listed like five, but there were probably like 15, 20 in between these, um, you know, just who would run everything. And I got to tell you, I have never had so many people run a CBC and a CMP in my life. Like everyone would just run it. I would come to the offices with like a stack of medical records and everyone would just run a CBC. And I was like, I have it from last week. And they were like, we just got to check it again because who knows? And of course there was just nothing on that. So like, I was like, there's no, you could just, I felt like they weren't listening to me. I felt like I was losing my mind. I mean, it was horrible until one doctor was like, what about Lyme? What do you think? And I was like, how did I grow up in Connecticut and not think about think about that Lyme? At, at that <laughs> point, how, and at that point, when you got to that doctor previously, up until that point, how many yeah. doctors would you say you've seen? At, at least like 15, maybe 20 doctors. Cause I feel like there were at least another like 10, 15 after the diagnosis trying to get treatment. Um, so yeah, maybe like and all at, at least, yeah. And they were all specialists for the most part, just from what we're hearing. Yeah. I mean, you name it. I think I've seen the specialist, hematologist, neurologist, infectious disease. I mean, I, I saw an osteoporosis, like bone, like, like any specialty you could probably think of. I've done it. I had a whole PET scan just to like, see if there was anything. I mean, I'm so fortunate that, you know, I was able to see so many doctors and be able to get, you know, even seen because often it can take months and everything. I moved to New York so I could get um, faster medical care, but it was everything that you could imagine. And no one had any idea. I mean, we found of course the cancer and the sinuses, which, which is good, but right. um, yeah. So you're um, enriched, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking so much and I'm going to let you talk because this part is very important. I'll let you have the important part. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate being given an opportunity to uh, start to <laughs> learn uh, from Ali myself. So, so Ali, let's talk about uh, first how you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease. You said that there was a doctor who said, hey, we should, we should take a look at Lyme. Um, did you take a look at Lyme? And, and how did you look at it if you did? So the first thing that he said was we should just do the CDC, uh, you know, Lyme panel on at Quest. And I was like, sure, sounds good to me. I mean, I didn't know anything at that time. And got it. And it was negative. And he said, oh, so you don't have Lyme. So we're good. But, but at that point, I was like, Lyme, this is interesting. And I went down this whole, I mean, Rich, you were talking uh, before we were on about all the books that you bought to learn about. I was the same way. I downloaded everything I could find. I had people in my, um, in my family and friends who had like had known people who'd gotten Lyme, but they sent me books. I was Googling everything, trying to find it. And I was like, this sounds like there's some there, there, like there, that there's something there. So I went doctor hopping again um, and found someone who could get me a 
got me an Igenic test uh, instead of a CDC one. And of course, I, by that time, I had learned that there were some things wrong with the standard CDC testing at that time, um, and that maybe another test would be helpful. And of course, uh, came that positive with multiple bands, not just for Lyme, but for co-infections, ehrlichia, anaplasmosis. I got like the best ticks with all of this stuff. So, yeah. Well, maybe maybe you had multiple tick bites. Maybe you maybe you had the yeah. best. Yeah. Right? So, so, That's a great point. So, Ali, I mean, look, you grew up in Connecticut, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, the Lyme capital of the world, at least it was for, for um, the, you know, the earlier parts of the uh, history of Lyme disease. Yep. Um, did you or anybody in your family ever suspect that you had Lyme disease? It, I, and what's so funny is my grandparents and my aunt and uncle live in Lyme, Connecticut. Like we had no excuse. And it was, you know, it was sort of like thrown up at a time, like what is it Lyme? But it was sort of that, it was, we didn't know anything about it. So it was, I never had a bullseye rash, you know, that, that I knew about. No one ever saw a tick. I, at, you know, earlier in the journey, like I said, cause I was on the antibiotics, I didn't have as many joint pains. I wasn't like classically presenting for Lyme. And so no one really was like, this is the right call. And I, and that's sort of where that journey at that time ended. So I think one of the dangers of having this, you know, this classic presentation in our heads, right, where yeah. we're looking for ticks, which in most cases we don't find when they're biting us, unless you have taken some very specific steps to check yourself every right. day, a couple of times a day. Yeah. Uh, and this belief that, um, you know, that a majority of people get a bullseye rash, which they don't. And if, and if, and if you do get the bullseye rash, in many cases, you're not going to see it and know what it is anyway. And many right. doctors, even when you're, even when you have a rash, don't properly diagnose it. And again, there are a lot of other types of rashes, which, um, you know, which we treat in many other ways that are Lyme rashes as well. So, right. um, so because you didn't have this acute presentation, at least didn't realize that you had an acute presentation, despite having what sounds to me like very classic chronic Lyme disease symptoms, you never really thought about it, right? Even, even at Johns Hopkins gals, right? I mean, you know, um, you know I, I knew you were a fellow geek when I first met you. Um, and I did, <laughs> I did see that you went to one of the best schools in the country, right? So think about that. You're up in line, you're, you know, you're a geek, you're really smart, clearly very high IQ if you're going to a school like you went to. I mean, if you couldn't think about Lyme, Who's going to be able to think about Lyme when they're on yeah. this journey? I mean, especially when you have doctors around you. Like, I mean, I, 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 not, like, I remember my mom, like, raising it at an appointment and being like, could this even possibly be Lyme? And they were like, no way. You know, it, like, it, 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 especially when you have the team around you who are, again, supposed to be the experts or you think are supposed to be the experts in this being like, no way. You know, you don't, I, who would I be to question that? Or at least that's, you know, what I thought at the time. So talk to us when you went on your geeky Lyme journey, right? I mean, you and I have had a very similar, <laughs> similar research journey, right? I mean, you're really a, a, a capable young person. Um, you're, you're, you're now geeking out online books. And now are a lot of things starting to make sense for you, right? Because you, 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 you're, you're a young woman. Um, again, you're a girl at some of the earliest stages of this, and, and you're having multi-systemic illness, right? I mean, were you starting to now think, wait a minute, you know, I, I have fatigue, classic Lyme symptom. Fatigue, fatigue is followed up by 
by you know discovering that you know I'm immunosuppressed and and I and and my body can't clear me of of these infections and yeah they they look at me and they say oh the reason we can't cure, you know we can't clear these infections is because you have some you know some you know uh, abnormality when in fact that's not true right I mean that's not what right. was causing it right and then and then they then they find that you you know you you're you're dealing with cancer which of course is another consequence of being immunosuppressed, right? So we're starting mm -hmm. to see, you know, what should be a young, healthy person having multi-systemic challenges, right? Did, did anybody ever think, wait a minute, when you, well, actually, let me ask you the question that I was first asking you. Um, did you start to think, wait a minute, now, now that I'm learning that Lyme disease is immunosuppressive, it, it is a, a multi-systemic disease, I've had multi-systemic symptoms, did it start to make sense to you? It definitely did from the research. And I started really thinking like, what if there's something connected to all of this? Cause like, I mean, I was like, there's no way that I'm just like the most random, you know, unlucky person ever. Like who's just got this sinus thing that's not connected to anything. This cancer thing that's not connected to anything. These stomach issues that aren't connected to anything. Like it doesn't make any sense. I'm a whole person. And no one was really looking at it that way, especially because I did go to so many specialists who were so, specialized in their very, you know, narrow field that no one was really looking at like the, that whole picture that Lyme, you know, was starting to make sense. So that was the question I started to interrupt myself to ask you that I now <laughs> want to ask it you, works. right? Which is, which is, why do you think no one really looked at the whole person? Do you think it's because of flaws in the medical system where we become so specialized? Do you think it's because um, you know, the doctors just don't have the ability to sort of connect these dots with Lyme disease because of some of the challenges of Lyme disease. You think it's because, you know, you're a young, healthy, privileged white woman who, you know, who um, isn't given the kind of, uh, you know, attention that she should be getting in, um, you know, in a male dominated um, medical profession. What do, you, what do you think? Can I check what is a D all of all of the above all the above uh, <laughs> yes I mean it, it's definitely yeah it's really all of the above I mean I also I I downplayed my symptoms too I wanted I didn't want I thought I was like losing my mind I didn't want other people to think I I didn't want to get told that I was making it up that I was and I got told that anyways I I was I was I remember being 19 and being told by one doctor that and I'll never forget this that it just as you get older, you get tired. And, and as you, as you get older, you just, you know, you get aches and, and you get, you know, more tired and it just happens as you get older, it's natural. And again, I was like 19 at the time. Um, so I definitely, I flaws in the medical system over specialization insurance plays a role in that, that, I mean, I, I'd gone to so many hospitals that like they had 15 minutes with me and, you know, we've been talking now for however long and you can see my story does not fit. <laughs> In 15 minutes, it's complicated. There's a lot of nuance. So there's, I think there's a lot of, of reasons behind it. And I think that I also wasn't, didn't feel that I could advocate um, for myself as much at the time or that that would be frowned upon. And I think that was also something that I wish I had known that I could be like, I, I don't think you're, you're seeing this or I don't care. Let me show you these documents. Let me show you the research I've done. I didn't feel like that was appropriate when I had started and I wish I had known that I, that was okay or that I so, could find someone that that was okay with. 
But why didn't you think that was appropriate? Is this something you think yeah. is part of the medical culture? Is it the way you were raised? Is it, you know, it was it, you know, something about you? I mean, why didn't you think you could advocate for yourself that way? I have that same question. Rich just asked it because <laughs> I was, when we were going through it, I was kind of psycho about advocating to the point that doctors would get upset with me. So I've never felt that. So it's really good to hear like what made you feel like you couldn't advocate for yourself. I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of conflict. So like, I didn't want to, I didn't want them to think I was psycho and start yelling at them. And, and also I was really tired. Like I didn't have the energy to like, even just going to the doctor's office, getting dressed, you know, trying yeah. to, go, to go there was such a, a strain. I, I ended up with PTSD around seeing doctors because of it. And it was just such a thing. And then also, I think, and also the way I was raised, my grandparents, who are amazing, amazing humans, my grandfather is a rabbi, they, the, the amount of charity that he has in his soul is incredible. Um, they're very close with their doctors, they would come to like, you know, Friday night Shabbat dinner and stuff like that. And they were very friendly and they looked at them like gods, essentially, like you would do everything the doctor would say, the doctor would say, put your left foot in front of your right foot. And they'd be like, no problem. You know, when you're walking something like that. So I, I think that that might have been internalized a little bit that like these people must know everything, which is so weird because you question everything. I mean, you, it's okay to question your teachers. It's okay to question your, your attorney. My mom's an attorney. She always was like please question me on stuff so you know that was but for some reason the doctors just felt like not the space where I could question or or bring up stuff yeah so it was it was in large part at least this piece of the challenge you think cultural right it's uh I listened to a podcast recently where um where the uh the guest was uh an Indian American and he said when his when his parents immigrated to the U.S. um they said you are a doctor a lawyer or a loser Right? And he had to go to law school and, 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 and was not happy in that environment. Right? So in, in right. some cultures, especially, especially folks who are trying to move into the middle class or, or maintain a middle class uh, life, uh, they see uh, medical school, uh, legal education, uh, or losership, right? So, uh, I mean, do you think that's part of what was happening because of the, the, the place uh, that your family was in culturally? I do. I also think, um, you know, that I own some of it, that it was a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to think that I know anything about anything? Like I, and I still grapple with that, you know, sort of, I was really young too. I mean, these people were so much older than me. Um, I, you know, thought they had more experience. I really just not feeling confident in my, where I was and who I, I mean, I had felt like I had failed really. I had felt like I had was supposed to go to college and I was supposed to finish this and be on this path and I couldn't and I felt like who was I to come in and be like no I think you're wrong about this so I, it was there was a lot <laughs> no, let's, let's, again let's talk about another part of the culture and this may be more yeah. the American culture rather than rather than the Jewish culture and that is what about the suck it up culture right I mean there, there mm. is this sort of element uh, especially with with um, the way I think some dads parent their daughters. I, I have four daughters, so you know, one of the things you don't want to have is raise these whiny little girls. But at the same time, if you're if you're a little too aggressive and you're you know you're trying to encourage them to suck everything up, 
that starts to put them in a position where, uh, you know, they're not, uh, you know, you, you, if you're parenting that way, you're, you're putting your children in a position where they're not in touch with their bodies. They're not in touch yes. with their signals. They don't feel empowered. And, um, you know, rather than having little whiny girls, you have uh, people who are now not confident in advocating for themselves. So talk about whether or not that was also a part of your experience. Yeah, I definitely feel that that was a part of my experience. I mean, I think it's, I don't even know how much of it was conscious or just like internalized, you know, how much of it was said, or I just like felt it um, from, from people, but definitely the suck it up culture is a real thing, you know, like, um, you know, how much pain can you tolerate all of that stuff? And I, and it, I sucked it up so much. I ended up in the ER. Like I could not, like I was sucking up cancer. Like I didn't even know it was so bad. So like, it's, it's dangerous. Like I, I really wish that I, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I don't believe in aggression that like I knew this, you know, what I knew at the time and I was young and that's okay. But um, I, I wish if I could wish anything, it would be that I knew that it's okay to be like, this is a problem and that's okay. So let's now talk about medical gaslighting. You, you shared with mm. uh, Nicoletta that you, you were suffering from PTSD as a result of the way you were treated by the medical system. So yeah. talk about how you were gaslit by doctors and medical professionals and how that ultimately puts you into this loop where you couldn't get out of fight or flight. Yeah, I would. And I'm, I also, I'm very sensitive to like, I, I read people and I like, I've learned this about me. Like I will absorb sort of the energy that they're putting out there. So I would go into like a doctor's office and I could feel that they had like 15 minutes with me. So I felt, and again, like because of the system, the insurance, however they did it. So I was, so I would internalize that and think, okay, they've got 15 minutes. I've got to make my case. And again, a debater as well. So I'm like, I've got to get my material set. I've got to get my facts straight. I've got to present this really quickly. I've got to get all my organization. I've got to get all these tabs highlighted. So I'd come and I'd present it and they would read some of it. Sometimes they would read none of it. Sometimes they would read a page of it. Sometimes they wouldn't even listen to me and they would just run usually the same test that the last five doctors had ran or something like that and I would just be crushed but then I would think okay maybe if I could just do something better next time like maybe if I could highlight more of the the studies that I'm bringing or maybe if I could like organize them in alphabetical order or maybe if I could like you know not bring my emotions into it more I could just present the symptoms in more of a logical way they would listen to me more and I would get you know more um more feedback and more progress and I just put me into this cycle that I was so freaked out about even like saying anything or talking to anyone or opening up about anything with a medical person that it was just and anything they would say that was a rejection which was you don't know what you're talking about or you don't have Lyme or people would say it later on when I got diagnosed I don't believe in chronic Lyme I don't believe Lyme is a thing I would just it would just cut me and I would just try to like wall it off but it was and it, it just triggered that uh, condition and yeah thinking about it I'm like oh <laughs> yeah so I'm sorry to bring you back there but it, this is really no, important okay. stuff that, that that folks in the community have to uh, think about and and, and and try to try to overcome so let's yeah. talk about the imposter syndrome right mm -hmm. I mean yeah we've already talked about you going to one of the top colleges in the world and you're not getting into that college unless you're really smart and you didn't find that you were really smart the day you went to college, right? You've known that you're always smart. Talk to us about the imposter syndrome and how somebody with your capacity 
would believe that they were an imposter? I, I mean, I think it comes from two ways. I think, like I said, I, I felt like I failed. I felt like my goal and my mission was to be on that trajectory that like, you know, good middle school, do well, good, do well in high school, you know, get to, or sorry, go to a good high school, do well in that high school. I mean, I went to a very, a top high school as well, Miss Porter School, amazing high school, and then like do well there so I can get into a great college. And so it, I felt like I failed on that journey. So that really hit, and that was my identity too. Like you, you know, when you, when you um, introduce yourself, you know, what are the things that you say? I would say that I'm a college student. I go to Johns Hopkins. And so when I couldn't say that anymore, or that that wasn't the whole thing, it was a very difficult time for me. And I will also just say culturally, at least in my family, um, you don't want to get too big of a head. You know, you don't want to, you want to think you're, you're so good. So, you know, often there'll be, if you, something good happens, you can say like, okay, but that's not that big of a deal. You know, what's the next thing? Or don't worry. It's not, you know, gotten a Hopkins, who cares? So it, I think that sort of that, those two things combined a little bit um, to create that perfect storm for me. Right. So, and now, of course, um, I think one of the, some of the recent research suggests, and I listened to a, a podcast recently, uh, Hidden Brain Podcast, and I can't remember the name, psychologist or psychologist or listener, I can't remember the name, but I, I'll, I'll try to put it in the show notes. Uh, and what, what this expert on the imposter syndrome suggested is that both men and women feel the imposter syndrome, right? Although the research generated out of um, psychologists studying women and women in the 70s, and that's how the imposter syndrome ultimately was was, uh, was identified, uh, but we all, both men and women, according to recent research, um, uh, do feel that we are fooling the world and fooling ourselves and really are not capable of accomplishing many, a lot of the things that we are built to accomplish, right? Yeah. But it presents differently with men and women, although we both feel it, it's actually more paralyzing to women because of the way we culturally um, uh, where we culturally, um, I think, box women in than with men. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Do you think, do you think um, your gender played a role in your reaction to these cultural constraints that were placed on you? I do. Um, I think, I think culturally, and again, I, I mean, I'm a modern woman and everything like that, but I think culturally, even like the older people in my family, I was getting feedback with, oh, I'm so glad you could go to a good college so you can attract a better husband. You know, like there's, there is still that, you know, classic like boxing in of, of you know, it wasn't about what I wanted to do or it was that you can get a better husband. So well done. Um, so I do think that that's definitely a big part. I think, yeah, I, I, it's hard to say because I went to, you know, an all an all girls high school where, you know, we were, it was so focused about empowering young women, which was amazing. But for some reason, it's still when I got out there, and maybe it's because I wasn't with men in like high school. It's like in that formative time, I think about it all. I wonder if that played that when I was in college and when I was out, you know, trying to talk to all these different doctors, most of whom were male, that I didn't feel as comfortable sharing things that, that were very personal. So it's, you know, a combination. I, my therapist will get back to you with the full. <laughs> so, Allie, let's let's talk about your gap year. You shared with Nicoletta that you you, you took a gap year and you traveled to um, to um, Italy and China, Italy. And, yeah. you, and, and and you studied Chinese, right? So mm -hmm. uh, 
So um, what role did your illness play in that gap year? And if your gap year was driven by um, needing a break because of fatigue, because you were driving yourself too hard, do you think it was wise to, uh, you know, to go to foreign countries and study the most difficult language to learn in the world? Wise or just very on brand for me? Well, it's um, clearly on brand. I don't think we have to worry about brand. I just want to talk. I want to talk about again because we have to talk a little bit about boundaries here in a minute. But yeah. uh, you know, like the, what was what was really sort of like, uh, you know, um, flashing in my head when you and Nicoletta were talking about this was that it looked like you know this plan that you that you had for yourself or was given to you by your family, your culture, or you know however that came to you, um, put you in a position where. Um, you were starting to set boundaries and you were looking to take a break and, you know, you were, you were, you were stepping out of this traditional set of steps, but then you're going to work your ass off anyway. So tell me, tell me about that piece of it. Well, funny enough that that actually, the boundary around that came from my parents. They were the ones telling me, you need a break. You should take some time off you should do something different. And I was like, the only way I'm taking time off is if I can go to school during it. And it'll just be different school. It'll be cooking school. And then it'll be Chinese. So it'll be different, but it's still going to be school. Um, so that's sort of where that sort of push pull comes in. But it, it was, I mean, it was definitely less, I mean, it was school, but it was so much less intense than the school that I had been in. So it was familiar enough, but I was taking like one or two classes. So I had a lot of time where I, sometime where I toured Italy and, and Europe, which was amazing. But a lot of time I was in bed and I was just sleeping. And, and I just had kind of internalized that that was normal at that point, but it made sense that a 18 year old person at that time would have to like sleep for days on end. And so that's sort of where that push pull came in at that time. So now you diagnose with Lyme disease, right? You finally get the hygienic test, you're diagnosed with Lyme and a whole host of um, co-infections. Yeah. I'm not in love with the word co-infection, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it must've been exciting that you now finally have this uh, diagnosis that ties together so much. It was a medical mystery for you. It was, I was over the moon. I was, I've got an answer. We can go in this direction. We've got a path. And and that's true. It, it it felt, I mean, after being in the weeds with everything for so long, it felt such, so joyous to have people I felt like who understood me. Like I felt like the lab heard me, you know what I mean? Like the, the finally the scientists heard me, they heard my body, they got it right. Um, so it, it really, it was such an exciting, I remember I was, I was jumping up for joy. I, I cried. I called my mom. It was like, it was like getting into college genuinely but like and and no one I was like no one has ever been this excited about testing positive or something ever unfortunately that's not true because we've had many people on this podcast share the same euphoria that comes along with this epiphany because they believe that they now have a simple solution to a simple problem right 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 how'd that work out uh not not so simple turns out yeah. I mean, still, I, I still stand by that it was helpful and that it was really, it was joyous. And then I had that direction to go in because we were going in like every direction before then. Um, but it was, like I said, I think I said, I saw like 20 doctors beforehand and saw another like 10, 15 afterwards. I mean, we tried everything, all different, I mean, antibiotics, 
IVs, intramuscular, I mean, stem cell, I mean, you name it, we did it. Well, let's build that out. Ali. So, so yeah. you, you have your diagnosis, you're really excited. And I agree, there is something really um, exciting about having a, 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 a capacity to scope your problem. So that's wonderful. Of course, we, we believe that because we have our problems scoped, we are now going to find an easy solution, which of course is not the case, especially when right. you're chronically ill and, and you had this, this very aggressive presentation of a number of different you know, multi-systemic challenges. Um, so right. what's the first doctor you want to see? I went to see, and this is also what was what shifted is that up to this point, I would say most of the doctors were covered under insurance, um, with maybe like the exception of one or two, and then we stepped sort of off this cliff into like the ILAD world and all the other worlds who mostly didn't take insurance. So it, it quickly became a very different education, and I think the first one I saw was in New York. And he had this whole um, antibiotic protocol that you started with oral and then you quickly built up and you ended up with a, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the word, oh, a pick line where you would get the uh, antibiotics like through an IV essentially, which scared me like so much. I was terrified of having like this the pick line put in, um, but that was like his whole plan. And, and what antibiotics, Ellie, before you, before you move on with, with yeah. this first doctor, what, what were, what were the antibiotics that you were taking orally and what uh, antibiotics did you take intravenously? So we definitely started with doxycycline. We did minocycline. We did rifampin at the time. I feel like there were a couple others that I'm forgetting, but he had like this whole cock, like this complex cocktail where you were taking them at like different times of the day and we're sort of pulsing them like taking different doses at different times of the day um and and did you feel that you benefited at all from having this um cocktail of antibiotics over that window of time no i think i kind of think at that point it was a little bit late for the I mean, it's hard. I, I like to think that like each, like I was saying, I was sort of jumping between doctors. I like to think that each treatment, each thing led me to something else. So it helps me in that way. Um, you know, oh. check something off the, check well, something let, off the list, but I think that. really, so, yeah, that didn't. Yeah. So, 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 so the question is, why do you think it didn't help you? Um, yes, it helped you because it was a step in your journey and your journey is your journey and you have to go on the journey. Right. So I, I, I don't mean to say that anything's a waste of time, but the, the question really is, are you getting improvement from it? And why do you think you're not getting improvement from it? Is, did, do you believe you didn't get improvement from it because you didn't have a stage where you were prehabilitating and you were getting your body to take these antibiotics? Uh, where, you know, where you could, where you could, were they, were they given to you too aggressively? So there was too much die off. And as a result, you were herxing and your body could manage. I mean, what was going on there? And tell me why you think it didn't work. I mean, that's, it, that's all they talk about. Like, I think, I, I was definitely given very aggressively. I had such a bad hurt. My mom thought, my mom said, we, and we had gone through cancers, surgery, everything at this point. She said that was the most scared she had ever been. That I like couldn't talk, that I was like dying. And it was, I mean, I, I you know, I thought I was, I was so freaking out of it <laughs> at the time. Um, but she said I was like, like couldn't speak from how bad the hurt was. So I think it was way too aggressive. 
I think it was also a bit late that by that time, my Lyme had become very entrenched in my body. At least that was one of the theories that I was told at the time. Um, but I, I really think it was very aggressive. I think that was probably the worst offender of the whole thing and that my body just couldn't handle it. I, I had been through a lot at that point and I needed a more gentle touch to sort of nudge me in the right direction because um, it didn't affect the fevers that I was having. And again, at this point, so this is probably six, seven years in and I've had a fever every day at this point, every day, all day. Um, it didn't affect my energy. So it really didn't help those core things that I was looking for. Now, when you went to work with this first doctor, this, this doctor suggested you needed to make any other changes other than, um, than taking antibiotics. So you, you weren't given sort of the prehabilitation steps that we would expect or hope that a doctor would give you. But did the doctor talk to you about your diet, about, about movement? Did the doctor talk to you about any of these other types of things? Talk to you about your emotions and social, um, social issues? So actually, so movement and social stuff was never brought up, but the doctor before who had given me the hygienic test had um, suggested that I change my diet radically, that I cut out gluten and uh, refined sugar and yeast and soy and corn and dairy. I think that's pretty much the list. <laughs> So a, a, like a, a lot of things. And I was also very overweight at the time. It, I, it turns out it's from my thyroid as well. So I had started losing weight after that, the cancer diagnosis and surgery as well. So that really, um, eat, what I was eating was a huge part of, and also, like I said, I had IBS as well. So what I was eating was a huge part of what was going on for me. Well, right, so, you, so you had a passion for food, right? I mean, you had an aptitude, you went, now you go to a foreign country and you're studying uh, dietary science and you're, and you're, and you're learning all about food and diet. I mean, what was your, what were your instincts telling you? I mean, was your, was your gut telling you uh, that you should be using food as an element of your rehabilitation at that time? Or was that something that came with? When I was, Wait, when I was studying or when I from no no, no. Well, after you're studying, you're not you're not having a diagnosis, you're not being treated. Yeah. You're you have your you have the first doctor who's now speaking yeah. to you and telling you, hey, uh, food and nutrition is going to be an important element of this journey. Uh, you now go to your first doctor who's you know giving you all these antibiotics without any prehabilitation. Um, when when did you know when did your gut start to say to you, I really have to do a better job with my diet? And that what I'm putting in my body is going to have an impact on not only my ability to heal, but my ability to be healthy at all. I, I heard it when that doctor told me, but actually it was in the waiting room of that doctor who wanted to do such an aggressive antibiotics treatment when I was talking to another patient. And because th that first doctor had listed a lot of things to get, I mean, that's a lot to just say to someone, get rid of dairy yeah. and glue, like just get rid of it. If you don't need it, it's hurting you, your guts all met, like that's a lot. Especially talked, someone who is trained in Italy, you're going to have to have a lot of macaroni, right? So how can yeah. you, how can you, how can you cut out all those carbs? I know I, I have such a sweet tooth. I was like, what are we going to do here? Um, so that it was, that was a huge thing. And I was talking to this other patient in the waiting room. And she said that it totally changed. It turned out she also had IBS. It was just like this kismet moment. And she was saying that it made such a huge difference in her brain fog, just giving up gluten and her energy and everything. And she was so like open and honest and authentic with what she was talking about. 
And I was like, if this gets me 2% better, I'm in. You know, like I was, I was willing to try anything. And she really like helped push me over it. Obviously the doctors were, and as I, I floated it to more doctors as I went to, and they were like, hell yeah, try it. But it really, I was like, if this gets me anywhere better, I'm in. So uh, when did you begin to introduce some of these changes? So you, you were alerted to the dietary changes by your diagnosing doctor. You are now you are now being urged to uh, introduce these dietary changes by another patient who was was um, authentic and, and and somebody who was moving you. When did you when did you finally introduce these changes into your life? I started the dietary changes like the next week, but I started them gradually, which was something that I I was working with a therapist at that time as well. And we talked a lot of, I also like can jump in on something like 150 miles an hour. So she was like, why don't you try one? Like, instead of getting rid of everything at once, let's like, you know, sort of tear it. So get rid of dairy, for instance, let's just start there. See if there are alternatives, see what you can do. So I got rid of that. And then I think I was like dairy free for maybe a month. We added in the gluten. Then we tried that for another month, got rid of soy. You know, we sort of like tiered it gradually as soon as it got easy, sort of added, got rid of another thing. And it actually became kind of fun for me because like, I love a challenge and I loved cooking. So it became this extra challenge. I was like, anyone can make a cake with like eggs and butter and, and wheat and everything, but it's, it's really hard to make a cake without all those things. So it, it became a, um, a, a source of joy and fun and creativity for me to come up with recipes because I was often too tired to even make them but just to write recipes and to come up with foods that I could eat that had a, fit into all of those new requirements was really great. So I jumped on that pretty quickly. So as you started to introduce these changes in, into your diet, what impact that, was that having on you physically? And what impact was that having on you emotionally? That was the biggest impact of anything that I had done up to that point, bar none. I it changed the brain fog that it changed the migraines that I was having these literal like debilitating hunched over in a corner stomach pain that I was having when I was eating I mean after I was eating well sometimes while I was eating after I was eating uh it I lost about 100 pounds I mean it was the most which affected energy every I mean that was the number one biggest impact by far and I'm grateful that I I jumped on it every day now, did, did you develop these changes in your diet yourself with the support of the therapist you're working with who was asking you or recommending that you introduce these, uh, these changes and slowly because it would be healthier for you emotionally to do that? Uh, or did you begin to work with some nutritionists or dietitians or, or, or the professionals in that area? I, I actually did it sort of solo, I mean, with the therapist, but I jumped in on the research again started reading up about, you know, what you needed in a healthy diet, what, how many carbs you needed, protein, what, how many fats, what type of fats. I started really leaning into that. And I had always loved that, um, you know, from when I was younger anyway. So it was really interesting for me. I did see like one nutritionist one time, but by that time I was so just going into a doctor's office, like it was so stressful for me. I wasn't going to be able to open up about something and food, for, it's so personal, like food in general is so personal, it's social, it's very emotional. So it, it didn't, it felt like almost working with a therapist was the right way for me to do that at that time too. So of course, um, 
we're all bio individuals. We all have to find what works for us. Um, how did you determine after you were doing your research, what would work for you and what wouldn't work for you? I mean, what was your trial and error uh, approach to building out the nutrition plan that would work for you and became the game changer in your journey? So definitely learning, again, working with therapists, learning to listen to my body, but I had a really handy sensor, which was, did this physically hurt me? <laughs> so I would be able to eat something and find out like 20 minutes later, if it, if I was doubling over in pain, so it, it became a pretty quick feedback loop. Once I started listening to that, um, I mean, really like my body was screaming at me the whole time and I wasn't listening. So that was very helpful. I did also have a blood test done for um, like different sensitivities. And I worked on some of those, but it also it was really just trial and error, like cutting out something for two weeks, seeing if it made a big difference. You know, especially once I got down to like the finer things, like I know that I can't eat apples and that wasn't something that like gave me pain right away, but it was something that I found after like cutting them out for two weeks and then giving it a shot again. So it was really just a lot of trial and error. Sally, one of the things that I was a little concerned about as you were sharing with us the earlier parts of your journey is that because you are from a culture and a family that worships doctors, so you put them up on this pedestal, I was getting anxious about whether or not you were going to um, pivot from doctor to doctor quickly enough, right? Because one of the things we've learned on this podcast is it's never one bacteria, it's never just Lyme, mm -hmm. and you never get better working with one doctor right? You yeah. have to be able to pivot and you have yeah. to allow that doctor to give you whatever frameworks that you're working with to maximize the, you know, the value of that relationship. And then you have to be able to pivot over. So I, I was, I, I was anxious and I am anxious to hear this part of your story about how you finally pivoted from Dr. One who overwhelmed you with, uh, with antibiotics uh, that your body couldn't handle to get to Dr. Two. So that, that was also just having a really good support system around me. I was so freaked out. Like I, I had said, to, like, I was so scared of getting a pick line. Like I literally went in and he gave me all these antibiotics to jump on and I'm getting like the surgery for a pick line. And I'm like, and I, you know, I said, I like to go from zero to, you know, 150, but that was like zero to 10,000. It was frightening. Um, and I also, again, working with a great therapist, she was like, maybe you don't have to do it. Maybe there's another option out there. And what was the harm in looking for another doctor? Now that you've got this answer, you've got a direction at least, what's the harm in getting a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth opinion? And that just felt so right, like in my soul. It was like, oh, maybe I don't have to push through this scary, horrible sounding thing. Maybe I could just pivot. And that felt so right. And that's how I moved on to Dr. Three through uh 10 I think um and I ended up with a great Lyme doctor in uh in Connecticut in Orange Connecticut and that's where we tried like the next big chunk of um sort of slower ramp up with antibiotics and um bicillin injections and um stem cell treatment that really started making a difference for me okay so before we get into the rest of the doctors and I do want to go through each doctor and what you did with each doctor um, I want to debate with you a minute about what the game changer was for you, right? Okay. You argued the game changer for you was, was food and nutrition, right? And I'd like to debate that with you because I really think the game changer was you, for you was finding a good therapist that put you in a position where you were empowered to feel what you felt and to listen to your body. 
And I just wonder whether or not you would have been able to even get to the nutritional elements of your healing journey if you didn't have that powerful person who brought you through this journey emotionally and, and gave you permission to be in touch with yourself, even though culturally you were never given that permission. You know, that's a great, that's a great point. I guess I think of it sometimes like more binary. Like I'm like, what actually like specific thing that I did triggered the benefit, like in a really like finite level. And when I think of it that way, it was the eating. But if you look at it more of like a macro level, you're right. It was the therapist. It was being open to pivoting with doctors, being open to changing my entire life really around my food, the way I was thinking about food, what I was eating. So it, yeah, in that sense, it really was finding a wonderful therapist who helped me look at things um, very differently. So yeah, sorry, it wasn't too much of a debate, but. Yeah, so in the end, Ali, and, 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 I, and, and uh, you know, I, I always appreciate thoughtful people agreeing with me, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, but I, I really think that the, you know, the, the truth is it's never one doctor, it's never one therapeutic intervention, it's never one uh, it's never one, um, you know, bacteria or virus or protozoa. It's never one, right? But the mm -hmm. truth is the only way that we get better is if we are our own coaches, we are our own doctors, and we are in touch with our signals that our body is going to give to us, right? Because the only way we can really get to a plan that is specific to us, right? Because every one of us is bio-individual. Every one of us has a different set of micro spit into us. Every one of us comes from a very different background with a very different set of experiences that are going to either help, help us or hinder us. So the only way that we're going to get there is if we ourselves get ourselves there. And the only way we're going to get ourselves there is if we become our own coach and we learn how to listen to our body. And it sounds to me like the way that happened for you was with the therapist, which begs the question, do you think, do you think that anyone should go on the Lyme disease journey without having a therapist on their team. Never. And I don't think, and I said not to like broaden, I know that we're talking Lyme, but I don't think you should go on any chronic long illness related journey without a therapist. Support is the number one thing that you need because this is rough. There are ups and downs, there are disappointments, there are highs, there are lows. It was, yeah, I agree hundred percent. The therapist is the best tool that you can, or, you know, someone like that for you, if it's not like a formal therapist. Um, yeah. But not, not only to help you through the rough times, but to put you in a position where you can now listen to yourself. Yeah. And to really understand everything. Yeah. All right. So now, so now, so we, we leave doctor number, and I guess it's not, doctor number one diagnoses you, sends you to doctor number two. Doctor number two gives you this flood of antibiotics. You get sicker. You now go to doctor number three. So where is it? You said doctor three was in, in Connecticut. What did Dr. Three give to you and how is Dr. Three different than Dr. Two? So he wasn't, it wasn't as straight of a line. He was like Dr. 10. So there was like this clinic in New York that said that they specialized in like neurological Lyme that I forget the exact name of, but they had me do like days of like IQ tests and um, cognitive tests in the hope that they said that, um, or their theory, was that like everyone who had Lyme um, presented with a certain type of like neurological deficit. That was their thought. Um, and that if I did those cognitive testing, they could get me with 
the right doctor who would then give me the right set of antibiotics. But I had to go through all of this like very intense IQ testing, which was very traumatic for me. Um, and did nothing. <laughs> it turns out that's not, I mean, it was my experience and it turned out to be a thing. So I so, went from them to like one other, a couple other doctors. Before you go to the next one, let's say with the, the doctors who were giving you the IQ test. So what was yeah. traumatic about the IQ test? You have a very high IQ. Why was the, the IQ testing traumatic? Because it wasn't, well, A, it didn't really feel like my choice. It felt like I had to jump through this hoop in order to get access to care that I needed. And B, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't educational. Like it wasn't like I'm learning my IQ to see like how cool I am or something like that. Like that would have been fun for me. Like, or I'm just curious about what my IQ is. They want to find out what's wrong with me. And they want to do this test to see like that I'm to prove that I'm broken or something, that there's something wrong with me that they need to fix. So it just felt really negative. Like that they were, they were, they wanted to test me so that I could fail essentially, because then I could prove that I had Lyme because I had failed in a certain way. So it just felt incredibly true. And then I was in like a room alone. And I was thinking you know, all the time, again, the imposter syndrome coming up, thinking they were going to think I was, you know, something horribly wrong with me that I was, you know, making this whole thing up or something was just playing with me that whole time. So it, it was not a great experience. Okay. So you, you, you're, you're intuitively feeling this is a bad place for me. I have to get out of here. You now go to the next doctor. And uh, by the way, did the IQ testing doctors, um, did you ever get to any of the doctors after the IQ testing or did you leave before you got to those doctors? No, I, I stuck it out. Um, my regrettably um so I did get to the other doctors and they recommended that I go on a and I didn't present in, in the test that I, I had I, I guess this is like so weird to say but I had a higher cognitive ability than they were expecting with the deficit which I felt like well you didn't know the baseline so it was hard for you to see the difference right um but so it wasn't so they were like we'll give you a little bit of doxycycline to try so I went there and I tried just like a little bit to see if it helped not a, and then we went through a couple of doctors in their practice they kept bouncing me around there until I finally so that's how we got up to like number 10 those they really jumped that number up for me um and uh that's how we got to the, the doctor in Orange Connecticut okay so talk about doctor in Orange Connecticut and how is that doctor different than the first 11 doctors you saw well, the one thing that well, the one thing I say was that I found very consistent is that he's a bit eccentric. They're, they're everyone, they have their own um, way of doing things. And I felt like I had to adapt to the way that he was doing everything that wasn't quite the way I was expecting a normal doctor relationship to go, which triggered a little bit of my PTSD again. So it was just so difficult. But um, he had a whole protocol that I felt like was more wide ranging, that was more had more room for individual input than other doctors. And that was really um, a game changer for me. I still feel like the food was the most game changing, but um, so he put me on like, um, I mean, like I said, by selling, we tried uh, a, a Vado wine. I'm probably pronouncing that horribly, so I apologize. Um, but if you can Google it and you're know, close to it, you're on it. Um, we then tried like Gamunex C, like IV. I mean, and then we went, and none of that, I feel like it all made like, uh, like micro differences. Um, but for me, the biggest difference 
in that treatment period was actually doing stem cell therapy. It was the first time that I had gotten rid of my fever in eight years at the time. And, and that's scary too. There's a lot of risks with that. There's a lot that goes into that. Um, but that was the one thing that, that really changed at that stage for me. So I want to go back to the way you describe the doctor. Uh, I'm going to use my term. I, so you, you, you meet this doctor. You, you've been gaslit for, you know, for a long period of time with all of your pre-diagnosed diagnosis doctors. They all yeah. suck, right? Yeah. Then, then you get diagnosed and now you see, you know, seems like the doctor diagnosed you was relatively competent, gave you some pretty good advice, but then you see 10 or 11 other doctors that suck, right? Hmm. Now you finally get to this weirdo and you know, like he's like a little offbeat, and I, I'm taking it back, and and it's triggering my people. Like, why did you stay with the weirdo, and and why do you think the weirdo was actually a you know a better doctor than any of the almost thirty doctors I think we've counted before, and more than thirty doctors? Because he thought outside of the box. You know what I mean? Like the 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 eccentricness, the non-linear being was actually helpful because my answer wasn't linear. I wasn't a in the box patient as us humans are not. We're all, as you've been saying, we're all very different. We're all individuals. So I think that actually became, again, it was still very weird to be like, okay, I think he's really helping me. I'm going to put the other stuff aside. Um, so well, wait, I- Wait, wait, you have to pause for another second. What, what, what you got to give us a description of this weirdo. I mean, what was so weird about this guy? I mean, I need to know. You're, gonna be, you're, you're talking in very general terms. Give, give I know, I just- I don't want to like call out anyone, um, but I'll, I'll just say that like, and this is for me, but I am super allergic to animals and uh, the doctor had animals all over his office, like crawling on me while I was trying to express how it was like in this chair with me, the whole office was covered in animals everything hair, hair uh dan like and i'm very allergic to that stuff so that was in particular one thing that was very memorable and and very um it's something i had to overcome um and we're very glad when we moved to like telehealth all right so the, so the animal weirdo doctor who thinks out of the box and behaves out of the box turns out to be the person that is very different than everyone else in more than just his his little idiosyncrasies he's also willing to um, think outside of the traditional uh, medical model and he's going to work with you so you have this therapist who's encouraging you to, um, to listen to your, your body. You have somebody who's now willing to do things that are a little bit different and allow you to give him input about whether it's working or not. And it takes you down this journey where you, you're trying a number of different things and you finally get the stem cells. Exactly. So talk to us about how the stem cell therapy was, was discussed between you and, um, and Dr. Cat Hair and how, uh, how that ultimately became uh, something you decided you were going to move forward with. It was, I mean, I, it was good in that sense that we had gone through everything else, like pretty much everything else that he, definitely everything else he could think of. It felt like everything else that everyone, I mean, not everything else, but a lot of the things that I was hearing online and from other people and in my research. So we had tried a lot of those things and they hadn't quite worked. And he was saying that stem cells are incredibly risky. They're, they're very unknown. There's some dangers that are involved in it. Um, there's a lot of risk you know, it has to sort of be more of a last resort 
option, at least the way things are right now. And I was like, I think we're kind of there. I've been bedridden at this point for eight years. I've had a fever for that whole time. I, I think we're pretty much there. Like I'm willing to try anything to get this wrapped up. I just, you know, let's do the research on it. Let's make sure we find a, a, a reputable um, bank, uh, you know, one that's responsible and does testing and all that stuff, but let's, you know, give it a shot. And he actually was able to do that and do some research on, um, I think we got our bank out of like Utah or something and was using like cord cells because there's different types of stem cells that I learned like, you know, from adipose, like from fat tissue, there's all these different types. But we found that like cord cells were the best uh, option, at least for me. And that's um, what we did. So I'm a little anxious about this part of your story because we've interviewed folks in the past who have had some challenges with stem cells, especially people who had allergies and had challenges with histamines. So yep. you're an allergic gal who's going to a place where your allergies are triggered, where all mm -hmm. the cat hairs all over you. And mm -hmm. this is the guy who's asking you to use stem cells. Did, did, uh, did he tell you that in his research, people who have histamine issues and people who are, um, people who are uh, suffering from allergies, in many cases have challenges with stem cells. And if he did, was that something that caused you to think maybe this might not be something I should try at this stage in my journey? So I, I felt like he could have shared more things about stem cells with me, but I had done a lot of research on it before. So I was, I can't remember like who exactly brought that up, but it was discussed. Um, and I did end up taking Benadryl when I took the stem cells to sort of counteract that and fortunately didn't have a problem other than Benadryl and I are not great friends, but not from the stem cells at least. And he did have like a separate room that was kept more sterile than his place with the animals. So that was at least better too. All right, so we, we have three game changers here for you. Game changer number one is your therapist, right? You're, you're taking this journey with somebody who's helping you not only overcome the ebbs and flows that come along with being chronically ill and dealing with all the medical trauma, but you also have a therapist who's helping you to be in touch with your body and to now advocate for yourself when something's either working or not working for you. Game changer number two, you are now um, uh, very much enmeshed in the process of learning about nutrition and trying different nutrition uh, and, and, and dietary protocols that allows you to feel better. Mm -hmm. Game changer number three, now we have stem cells, right? And the stem cells are now really making a difference on this gal who's really been through this terrible eight-year journey. How did stem cells change you, change your health? And when did it start? Give us the progression. I think we did. So the one thing that I learned too is that, so technically there's like a therapeutic, again, it's, it's all very like new and cutting edge. So, but he felt like there was a therapeutic stem cell level. And I was like, give me a 10th of that and let's give it a shot. So we started and he listened to me, which is also amazing. And so we started at a very, 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 very low dose. Like he was like, this isn't going to make any difference. And I think we did like that first small dose in like December of it must have been right before the pandemic so like I think 2019 December of 2019 is when we did the first very small dose uh, and they do it by weight so I think like for my weight it was like three grams or something and I did like a quarter of a gram like it was I could be sort of wrong but that's pretty much the gist and then we did 
and it was also a test. Like I wanted to see if I had an allergic reaction to it, if there was some other problem, if it made things worse. And so then I did like another dose that was like double the size. So like it was like a quarter or half in December. I did like, um, you know, half or you know, a whole gram in like January to see. And we just started doing it very small doses pretty frequently or not frequently, but like every three months and sort of built up until I had gotten actually like one full dose, which apparently, which apparently technically you were, according to again, his protocol, you were supposed to do that full dose more frequently, but just everything that I had learned, I'd become so sensitive that I needed a really small dose. And it actually started helping after like the second, even the second small dose in that January. Okay, so now when you say started, how, what what did um, what happened? I mean, how did you start to feel differently after that second small dose? The biggest difference was that I started like it was almost like I had like a fever light switch on for like eight years. Like this, it was just in the up fever position, and then it started like going off occasionally. Like I would have an hour without a fever. I would have a day without a fever. I would have two days without a fever. And then with that, the migraines, which were much better, started becoming less. I started getting more energy. I could work more consistently, maybe work, you know, one day of work with two days of resting, you know, and, and, and working like out and about, not in bed, essentially. And then it became, you know, after another dose, I could have two days of working and, and one day in bed, you know, something, it really built up very gradually. There were longer and longer periods without the fevers, the other symptoms became less because of that, less joint aches, less pain, um, again, less fatigue overall. So it, it became very gradual the more we did it. So Natalie, I, I'm, I'm now sensing a change in the gal who started this journey, right? You were somebody who was like, give me as much as you can. I want to do it as aggressively as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm from the suck it, I'm, I'm, I'm through this suck it up culture, you know, and now we have a very different alley, right? You're, you're at a stage where you're like, give me a 10th of what the dose is supposed <laughs> to be, right? Which is, which is quite frankly, again, another one of the lessons we've learned in this podcast, it really is slow and steady. If you're too aggressive, in many cases, you get sicker. And we've had folks, uh, Nick Terensky yeah. comes to mind, um, you know, but uh, I think Lauren Arnell as well from, uh, she's, she's actually living, I think, in Germany, but she's from France, uh, who's, who's also written a brilliant book. Um, there are two people that said that they really aggressively pushed their doctors uh, to, um, to uh, treating them aggressively, and they both crashed. And Nick just recently posted on social media, he's had a setback, mm -hmm. uh, but he, he went from being sick to being bedbound and seizures. And, you know, so how did you go from being the, I want as much as possible, I want to get this over as quickly as possible, to now being a, a much more cautious um, patient? You know, it's so interesting, like going through this whole thing with you and looking at it like this. I, I think, I mean, I, I, it was probably talking with my therapist and looking at what was happening because I was having those setbacks. I was having those crashes every time I pushed for more, for faster treatment, for more, like, let's try more treatments at once. And then I had some pretty aggressive doctors to begin with. I would have a setback. I would you know, instead of like being able to have one good day a month, I would have no good days in two. Like it really, you could tell the crash, the amount of, the amount of focus I could have in terms of reading, in terms of watching TV, talking to people really diminished significantly. So I would, the fever went up, like it was really heavy crashes and it became 
a realization that took a while. There were a lot of those, you know, crashes before I figured it out that it was like, okay, maybe if we try this really pulled back, like a tenth of what you're saying to me, maybe that'll be enough. And I think there was a lot of reasons why I became so sensitive, you know, the cancer being part of it and everything, but, and the Lyme disease, especially. Um, but I think that became a really big key that I just needed like a small bit sort of realign thing. So uh, uh, Ali, another one of the takeaways that I, you know, that I'm, you know, blessed to learn from you is that when you're learning to read your body signals, it's not just to make sure that you're able to interact with your doctors so you can give the doctors feedback about whether or not what you're doing is working or whether or not you should be working with that doctor anymore. But part of that feedback loop is also putting some blinders on yourself and making sure that you are being gentle with you and you are not pushing yourself too hard when you're going on this journey. And that was another really important part of your healing journey. It, it is, and I'd say that that's definitely the part that I'm still working on today. It's still is not pushing myself too hard about being okay with taking, even though I'm doing wildly better, you know, I'm definitely, I'm like 75% of the way there. Um, which is amazing for me. And I, but still not working, you know, 27 hours a day, something like that. Um, and it, it's still something that I struggle with and that my therapist and I are still constantly battling out. Uh, right. Because well. I, I because you, part of your personality is you didn't have time to be sick. You didn't have time to listen to your symptoms. You didn't have time because you were on a mission. Your mission was to get through college, to get through, you know, get, get to your, your place in life. Right. And, and because of that, because we don't have time to be sick, we don't see that Lyme disease is something that has to be managed slow and steady, right? Yeah. If it's too aggressive, it's not going to work. But for gals like you who don't have time to be sick, you don't have time to heal. You just got to jump in and you got to do it as quickly as possible because that's what your personality is. Well, and like, it's not fun. I will just full on say that. Seeing, you know, leaning into it and seeing all these doctors and trying to find, it's not fun. It's, you know, if you can get it, you know, that time where I was trying to ignore it, that I thought I was getting away with it, there was a reason for it. It's because it's hard to lean into it and to advocate yourself and to commit to doing the work and trying to really heal. It's hard, but it's so worth it. But it almost sounds to me like it did become fun for you. The way you described, um, you know, investing in the uh, nutritional elements of this and leaning in a tradition, I, like your face was glowing when you were describing that. So it almost sounds like it did become fun for you. You just had to find those pieces that spoke to you and then you started building on those pieces. And when you began to love the process, it sounds to me that's when you started to heal. That's true too. I mean, it, it was definitely hard, but there were definitely huge benefits. I mean, I found what I was meant to do in, in life you know, because of this being, you know, working with food and everything. So it's- All right, but pause yeah, on that because Nicolette is going to take you through that. I have a little more to talk to you about before you get there. <laughs> Sorry, so don't, no don't, don't, don't jump ahead in the story there, Allie. So uh, talk to us about how the whole stem cell uh, process um, came, to, um, came to a close or has it not come to a close? It, I wouldn't say the door is like fully shut on it, but I haven't had an infusion in- like a little bit over a year and it's been good. I've, I've been maintaining with infusions of Myers cocktails, which like B12 and vitamin C about every four to six weeks. 
And that has been holding off the fever for me. So it, what actually came to the point was my allergies started to get really bad, like so much worse than I had ever had allergies before. On the stem cell that we started, you know, we were on that trajectory doing, you know, one every three months, a little bit higher dose. And on, I think maybe like after the fourth or fifth uh, dose, my, like I was just so sensitive and so allergic to like anything, like any little tree allergy I had was like a level 10. And to me, I was talking to the doctor and I was thinking like, if allergies are your immune system overreacting, maybe we've reached that point where we've got, my immune system has been built up enough where I'm, I'm not having the fevers anymore. Maybe we just need to let this, you know, go for a while, which is also hard too. Cause again, to your point, <laughs> I'm you know ready to keep going and keep going on it. Maybe the best thing I can do here is just let these stem cells work and let them have time to rebuild what's been, you know, damaged. And that, that turned out to be the key as well. So now are you doing anything else other than the Myers cocktails in your current, uh, current treatment? Other than still continuing the diet and seeing the therapist, no. Right. So I mean, the, well, your, your therapeutic yeah. relationship is going to be lifetime and we all should have a therapeutic relationship. Your dietary, uh, your t- dietary changes or your nutritional changes are lifetime. And, yeah. and we should all have, we should all have that as part of our, as part of our uh, journey. Um, but I'm just, by way of uh, therapeutic intervention, uh, it's the Myers cocktails and that's it, right? You're, you're, um, you're just allowing the stem cells to work and using the Myers cocktails. Exactly. That's the plan. Okay. One more thing I want to debate with you about before, uh, before I turn you over to Nicoletta, uh, to talk with you about your transformation that you, of course, were already anticipating and ready to go to before I finished. And that is <laughs> let's, let's debate a little bit about the game changers versus the impact that it all had on you. One of the things that I'm always concerned about in this podcast is we have folks come on who have been in, in treatment with 10 different Lyme doctors, in some cases, you know, like Ali Hilfigerhood, who's you know, very successful and had access to every mm-hmm. major Lyme doctor ever. And she yep. went to Horowitz and she went to, you know, like everyone, yep. right? Yeah. So, um, so um, you know, and then, and then, so the, the concern that I always have when we're doing this podcast and one of the sort of the holes that I, I always want to close up is... A lot of folks say, well, I went to Dr. X and I did protocol X and that's what got me better. And I'm like, yeah, not so fast, right? Every single step in the journey, as you had argued before, leads you to the next step. But maybe it's a little bit more than that. Maybe every single step is making changes and improvements in you, even though you don't see it at the time. You may not be able to see it until the end. And perhaps we'd make the mistake to say, hey, if you want to follow Ali's model, get a therapist, change your diet, use stem cells, and you'll be better. Or is this really something that you know needs to be looked at more holistically? So, for example, when we interviewed Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, brilliant book, brilliant author. She and her husband went on the journey exactly the same time. Got bitten at the same time, got sick at the same time, had similar symptoms. And um, what Chris told me when I interviewed her was that the reason she believes she had a better outcome than her husband is because she used antibiotics and she used um, IV antibiotics early mm-hmm. on in the journey and he did. And she believes that's why they had a very different outcome. So you were not happy with your antibiotic, your uh, IV antibiotics and some of the things that happened early on, but do you think perhaps 
that did beat down the microbe load enough for your immune system to manage. And then the rest of the stuff was successful because of that. And do you think you also had some of those similar kinds of things in the other places that you went to? Or do you think perhaps really you, you know, to shortcut your journey, it could have been therapist, diet, and stem cells? I, I really think that I, I do actually really think that it all worked to some, I mean, like, I, I think it's impossible to say for sure. And I've also be, tried learn to become more comfortable with not knowing and just being like, it, I'm here now. Some of these things worked to get me here. I'm not a hundred percent sure of everything. Um, but I, I do think that they did help. I think it's hard to say, was it the more aggressive treatment? Was it you know, the doctor in, in Connecticut more with like the, the rants on, but I do kind of think that at least in my head, the way I think about it. And again, I have no like proof that this is the way it really works, but I think that the antibiotics, the IV, the, the intramuscular penicillin, bicillin injections, um, all of that, I think it did kill enough of it or kill some of it that, or, or killed all of it, who really knows that, at the time that we were able to do the stem cells, they were more about healing the damage. Like I think of it sometimes as like, I don't know why the image came to me, but it's like sort of a, like my body had been through a war and there was, and then there was all of these scars, all of these like craters from bombs and everything. And then the stem cells were able to come in and really fill up and hopefully repair some of that damage, but possibly without all those antibiotics, there still would have been guys fighting them in there and it wouldn't have, worked the same way so that's kind of how I think about it in my head but I'm not sure and I know that like the real difference for me happened at the stem cells but it could have just been because my body was so used to being in a fevered state I mean I was it was more normal to have a fever than not at that point that I needed something like the stem cells to come in and really fix that turn that switch off so it's it's my it's story is so complicated like the cancer and everything like it's hard to say what was you know the smoking gone on one thing. All right, so now, Ali, you've been on this journey 15 years, uh, 16 years, 15 years, right? So I want you to now, I want you to look back at, at um, you know, the 17-year-old young woman who started this journey. What would you say to her? What would you have wanted her to know when she started this journey that you now know? And how would you, how would you advise her um, when she started this journey so that she would have a less, uh, she'd have less suffering on the journey? That's such a question. I, I think I would say a lot to her. <laughs> um, but I think that like the short thing would be kind of that it's all gonna be okay, that it's okay to listen to what you're thinking, what you're saying, what that voice inside you was saying, and not necessarily what other people are telling you or saying, or, you know, you, you have a good feeling, a good gut sense of, of what is right and what you can do. And it's okay to try things and fail at them and try something else. So I think that's, I think that's kind of what I would say. And I'd also probably say something like, I'm proud of you as well, that she, she would need to hear that. That's awesome. So with all, with all of that said, right, you've had a lot of like loaves on your journey, um, but you've still stayed positive. So I think it's appropriate to ask this, 
what part of the Lyme journey has been beautiful and taught you about yourself in the world that only going through a suffering like Lyme can teach? It has been like transformational, honestly. I am, as we've sort of talked about, and as I've even investigated more going talking with you guys, I am a very different person now than I was then. And I feel like I am my more authentic self now. And that just feels so great. And that's given me, you know, what I, I even said, you know, in the beginning, I knew I wanted to go into international business, international finance, but I wasn't really sure what it was. And through Lyme, I was able to find what I feel like I was meant to do. I was able to find who I think I meant to be. I'm not a finished product. <laughs> I'm not done in any, any sense, but it's, it's been really, that's been really beautiful to have that time to be able to work with a therapist, to really be stripped down in a way to sort of like the bare things to face hard choices, to really have to look at difficult decisions and to be able to come through that and to have a really nice support system to know who, who really is there for me and everything has been, has been pretty special. How, how are you feeling now? Um, how are you feeling that you're called to use your newly discovered God get God given gifts to serve the Lyme community? I I hope that I can. I hope that my that my story that what I've gone through can help someone. Like I said, I was helped in that waiting room by that patient who told me that the her diet changes had really helped her. I mean, I have been helped so much along this way by small gestures, by big gestures, by people giving me Dr. Forwitz's book, by people being just so generous with their time and their knowledge. Because um, if you think about it, we've, we've got this sort of really specialized knowledge that isn't helpful to like, the, you know, random people on the street, but it is so helpful or can be so helpful to someone also going through this Lyme journey. And I think that's pretty special. So I, if, if that can help in any way, if, if the food discoveries that I've made can help in any way, then that's amazing. It makes it all seem even more worth it. So you, you said that, you know, you found what you were meant to do. Can you share a little bit about what that is that you're meant to do? What is your business? Fill us in. So, <laughs> uh, so this is sort of like, I feel like the happy ending here for me, my business is, uh, so my business is called Bear Life, which mm-hmm. I, I came up with a name when I was sitting in bed um, and I was trying to think of names and I was sitting in my childhood bedroom and I was looking at a teddy bear across the street, uh, across in my other bed. And my dad's name is also Barry. And I was thinking how perfect bear, like, but not B-E-A-R, B-A-R-E, what I've had to be in this journey, what I believe like is the best diet, a clean, pure food thing. So that's why I called it bear life. And it came from when I was told I had to get rid of all of those foods, get rid of dairy and gluten and refined sugar. I just started playing around in my kitchen and writing recipes in my bed. And I came up with uh, the idea to come I Cause I was looking, I was saying, where on the shelves is that, that clean food? Where is that plant-based refined sugar-free gluten-free food that tastes delicious and that I can eat now? And there was, there was nothing. So I started creating it uh, in my kitchen and like I said, I have a very entrepreneurial family. So when they tried it and loved it, they were like, maybe this could be a business. 
and it just became such a great thing starting with our, our first product which is a, a plant-based hot chocolate without any refined sugar it's organic just five ingredients and it's been so fun to go on that journey to really as I've healed the business has grown which has been amazing so it's been able to grow with me which was also something I was concerned about how am I going to work with being so uh, ill and that's just been such a beautiful thing to be able to meet people who have Lyme disease who have dietary restrictions for other reasons to be able to see the joy that hot chocolate brings to people I mean it's that, like who doesn't love oh I know, was gonna say you had me at chocolate you know exactly. I mean, <laughs> hot cold whatever chocolate. exactly yeah yeah oh, exactly. that's my weakness yeah it's, that's I mean I'm totally biased but it's great <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. So, um, is it online? Like if anyone's interested in Bear Life, would they go online? Do you have a website? Tell us a yes. little bit about that. We have a website called, uh, eatbearlife.com. We're also on Amazon. We're also in all of the Whole Foods in New England. You can also find us on QVC as well. Um, like I said, as I've, as I've gotten better, <laughs> has grown, um, so if you go on our website, you can see all the locations there and we have a bunch of recipes as well, cause, you know, not just stopping with the hot chocolate. I want to make more foods and more products, but we've also got like pancakes you can make with the hot chocolate, muffins, smoothies, brownies, again, all dairy free, all gluten free, all things that I can eat, you know, very clean, but still like tastes like the food that I would use to like still taste like the hot chocolate that I knew and love still taste like brownies that I knew and love, but are just without all of the unnecessary ingredients now. Oh, I love it. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I do have a final question. Can I ask the final question? Okay. I haven't asked Rich if I can ask this question. He doesn't know what I'm going to ask, Ooh. but I, I, hearing you talk, I heard PTSD a lot. I heard therapy a lot. Mental health is something we don't really talk about. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, what are two pieces of advice that you would give someone that is struggling with hanging on? Like, what would you give them to tell them? Like, what advice would you give them to tell them to not give up? Oh, I went in so many directions, but that's such a good, that's such a powerful question. I, I would say two things that I think. I really held on to, and, and hopefully they can be helpful to someone else, is one that I kept thinking of is that there was always another day, that even if today sucked, and even if I cheated on my diet and ate <laughs> a donut when I was supposed to be getting rid of gluten, that there was another sunrise, that there was another day where I could wipe the slate clean and give it another shot. And that was really helpful for me. And also um, my grandparents are, are Holocaust survivors and they lived through the most unimaginable tragedy. And, they're, and they actually, they met in a line um, to be sorted, to go left, to be, to live, to go right, to be killed. And that's how they met when they were children and reconnected mm -hmm. later and lost huge parts of their family and in, in the, during the Holocaust and listen, having their story told to me as, as I've been growing up and to have them in my life 
it's always put in perspective that if they can, if they can do that, I can do this. And that's sort of been inspired. So I've been inspired by their journey really as well. I can't thank wow. you, Allie and Nicoletta enough for, you know, building out this beautiful podcast together. I love the two of you. It was really a great episode. And I think our community is really going to be busted. So thank you both for uh, taking the time out of your, out of your busy schedules in your lives to share uh, your journeys with the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Ali Lazowski. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Allie, please visit her Instagram at eatbearlife or Allie Lazowski. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.